They told me for years there was no money in podcasting. Well, they were all wrong. This is an ambiguous podcast solutions original podcast. A podcast years in the making. Centered around You're listening to Talking with Tarasha with your host and founder of Ambiguous Podcast Solutions, Will Tarashuk. Join Will and his guests as they talk about anything and everything under the sun. Now, without further ado, let's do this. Yes, I know I have gray hair. All right, all right, everybody. Welcome back. This is the Talking with Tarashuk podcast. Now, I don't know how I feel with this one. It's going to be a little interesting, Leanne, because uh, my guest today is Leanne Alfaro. Alfaro. Screwed up already. Leanne Alfaro, who is a journalist, producer, strategist, podcaster, as well as a friend and my former boss. Maybe that's why I'm a little nervous. Leanne is also the host of the Moneda Moves podcast, which tells stories about Latinos in business, their relationships with money, and their role in the American economy. We're going to talk a lot about that, podcasting, landscape, social media, as well as anything else that comes up in between. Leanne, welcome to the show. It is so good to see you. I'm glad you're doing well, and uh, welcome to the show. We talked about this for so long, and here we are. We have. We have. I love that intro. That was awesome. I, I never play my intros live for my guests, but I'm going to take that tip from you. That that was cool. Yes, so uh, that intro is that's all me that's a hundred percent my my voice i just did it super low uh my my friends my my actually my studio partner i should say shout out to uh christian over at cube recording studios in montclair new jersey uh mix it all together record it in his studio and since i have the mixer and i can record on multi-track i can just do intros outros ads sound bites whatever i want in the podcast which saves me time for editing later on which is super useful I'm sure it does. Yeah, that was super creative. I loved it. I'm going to take a tip from your book. All right. So, Leanne, I've known you for a little bit, but my obviously my audience does not. So please tell me, you know, tell everyone who you are, where you're from, what you do, and what brings you here today. Yeah, I mean, you did a pretty great intro there. I am a journalist by trade, and I fell into business journalism about seven years ago out in New York City. I'm a Chicago native, but I went out there to pursue journalism in the number one market. And when being in business journalism, I noticed there wasn't a lot of representation of people of color or Latinos. So that led to the podcast that you mentioned, one of the moves where I cover Latinos and money and our cultural relationships with money too. So it's been a wild ride. It's been awesome. And by day, I worked with you at NASDAQ to kind of do use those same skills that I had as a journalist to build out uh, podcasts, build out video, social strategy. All right, I remember, Leanne, I remember the day you told me you were going to start a podcast. And I was just like, oh, yes, finally, <laughs> finally. Because I remember, I'll never, I'll never forget this, um, we met at my job interview of all places. Um, yeah. And the big thing I remember is that I really hammered in the fact that, you know, uh, Trade Talks, the uh, position I was applying for, needed a podcast, right? It was on YouTube, Twitter, but that's really it. And I've been hammering that home still <laughs> two and a half years later that it needs to have a podcast. So what was it, what was it like? Uh, that whole interview process and uh, how did I do <laughs> on the interview? Clearly I got hired, <laughs> but anything that stood out, like I've never actually asked someone in a, like a former, former place, like, you know, how did I do on my interview? But so Leanne, how did I do on my interview? 
Oh my gosh. Well, I definitely made an impression. I could tell you were very outspoken. I was just like, Will clearly like he has to have some work to back him up because he speaks he speaks so boldly about podcasting. Mm -hmm. I'm like, the position is for video, but he's here speaking about podcasting. Like, let's go check out what he's made of. And there was a third person in our conversations who's actually a mentor of mine and now boss again, Anna Gonzalez. So yeah, shout, um, shout out to Anna. Thank shout God out to for Anna. Anna. <laughs> so well, actually what happened with that, I, I'll never forget this too, because I was, I was unemployed for nine months in 2019. And um, apparently I applied for the position back in February of 2019 and didn't get the job, obviously. Um, and then someone else got it. And then they left to like Nebraska or Kansas or Montana or wherever they moved to. And I was on the, on the road or going on the road. And Anna called me or no, Anna messaged me on LinkedIn. It was like, hey, are you still interested? And I go, yes, I am. So we scheduled a phone interview, and the phone interview is actually on my way back home from South Jersey in the car. Because at the time, I was trying to get extra cash, and I signed up for um, a medical study uh, uh -huh. for, for, for Crohn's disease. Unfortunately, they told me, listen, you know, you're in remission. You can't really help you. So I was just like, well— it's okay. I got a job interview coming up. So, you know, fingers, oh my fingers gosh. crossed. Well, I had no idea. Wow. <laughs> yeah. What a story. It's funny how the cards just lined up. And I remember talking to Anna about the podcast, about trade talk. She's like, do you have any live experience? I'm like, a little bit. Podcasting, sure. I, I try to tie everything back into podcasting. I remember the interview just, I was on my A game. So it was you, Jill, and Anna. And I was just like, okay. Like, I was just... Mentally ready, because at that point, I've been on so many different interviews, like CBS Radio, smaller companies, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, okay. Right, right, right. Let's making just, the rounds. In making the, the rounds. Like, let's just, let's just get this shit down. You know what I mean? Sure. And yeah, I don't yeah. know what it was, but I was just on my A game, and lo and behold, here we are. Yeah. No, I mean, you definitely made an impression. It sounded like you knew what you were talking about. We checked out your work. We're like, he's legit. <laughs> Let's bring him on. Because at NASDAQ, the kind of person that we need is somebody who gets stuff done. And clearly you were that person. I think of anything the like side hustle that you had was it spoke to your experience and spoke to your ability to get stuff done. And that is very valued at a place like NASDAQ because it's a medium sized company, but the culture is very much like you don't stay in your lane. You, you have to embark embrace all of the lanes and, and make it work. So yeah, it, it's amazing experience having you on board, amazing experience building trade talks together for some time. Um, and now you and Jill are, are taking that helm on your own. And that's so exciting to see. Well, it was, it was interesting because it, here's something I had, like, I had this epiphany recently. I don't know if I talked about this on a recent podcast, but if I did, you're going to hear it again. Um, a lot of, actually all of my bosses, my direct supervisor, even my supervisor above my supervisor since in my professional career, uh, have been women. Uh, my very first job was Nakia, uh, who I still hope to have on this podcast because I love that woman to pieces. Um, even like my first job as a waiter at an at a old, old folks home, both my bosses were women. Obviously you, and then Jill, and then above Jill's Jen, all women. And it's just like, it's the craziest thing because I know for a fact I would not have as, as well of an experience or be happy in my position as, as I am and as I was in all my other jobs if they were men. And I don't know why that is, but all my boss have been women and it's just been the best thing I could ever ask for. So if you have a boss that's a woman, you're probably doing pretty damn well. 
Love it. Yeah, no, I mean, honestly, like I, um, I've had this similar experience of like, not, not all my bosses have been women, but a lot of them have. And I'm, I'm very thankful for having both. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm very thankful that, you know, women do bring like a, a a different perspective and, um, and I think just having like a well-rounded team of just like diverse experiences definitely helps like diversity of industry of origin, um, so I'm, I'm really thankful for sure for having had those kind of experiences and people from all over really in my career. So mm. definitely can resonate with you there. Well, I, so we mentioned podcast on the resume. You have a podcast on your resume. So how is, uh-huh. how has your podcast impacted your resume? And like when you were shopping for new jobs or someone approaches you for a new job, how often do they ask about your podcast? Cause every single job interview I've ever been on, it always comes up. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, you, you also push the podcast home for me. It's one that moves as like a brand. Okay. So I, at this point I've, I've been everywhere that I can try to find my followers. Um, I've explored TikTok, which was actually a really great growth strategy and funneled people to the podcast, but also funneled people to Instagram. Um, I've explored, uh, LinkedIn, um, just because lately when I've been talking a little bit more to venture capitalists, they're on LinkedIn. And so reaching them through communications for media for Moneda Moves has been interesting to do it through there. Um, and, and, and I've been building events too. So not just pod, the, the podcasts are like really like a conversation piece, mm-hmm. but like a launch pad for like future endeavors. So I, I kind of have been building out different, uh, I guess, uh, streams of media, uh, for Moneda Moves, whether it's in-person events, podcasts, TikToks, uh, speaking engagements at corporate companies at this point. And I think that it was just an opportune time because I launched the podcast at the top of the pandemic. And at the time, what were people thinking about? They were thinking about their financial security. Um, Latinos in particular, uh, were among the demographic that lost, uh, the most jobs. Uh, actually, if you look at the stats, stats, it's the black women and Latinas who, who were most often lost the jobs during the pandemic. So this is top of mind, you know, personal finance, money, our relationship with it. Um, and definitely a hot topic. So that's why I also delved into social media because that's where people were looking for that kind of content. Um, and so it's been a journey to really explore, uh, the growing, um, the growing environment, but also, uh, so many opportunities there and so many opportunities to just, uh, I'm a journalist, so typically I'm putting the spotlight on some on, on someone else, but mm-hmm. um, the the camera kind of turned on me at some point, and people were really interested in hearing my relationship with money as well, which I thought was very interesting. So one of them was turned to beyond a podcast and more of just like a, a brand. And um, my employers don't necessarily, I, I don't necessarily actively bring it up. I do disclose it. Um, I would say that mostly uh, people have found me online and they reach out to me. And I think that's really cool. It's a great way to build community. It's it's a great networking tool. You know, I say to everybody who has a business brand, entrepreneur, social influencer, whatever, you need to have a podcast. Podcast is the number one networking tool for your business or yourself. Um, and for you, you really hit it home. Uh, my podcast acronym. So my, Leah, I think I've told you this before. I'm going to do it again. A uh, podcast is a personally oriented discussion centered around select topics. Podcast. Um, I did not. I had never heard that before. Never heard that before. So <laughs> no. the, the P, the P stands for personal. Um, uh-huh. And every podcast is a business, whether you know it or not, but every podcast is also personal, whether you know it or not. So it's, it's not surprising to me 
that your audience or people in general want to hear more what you have to say on your podcast about money. Because every podcast I listen to, at least, I feel like I know the host. Like my wrestling podcasts I listen to, like I feel like I know Andrew Zan. I've listened to him for years. And I'm trying to get him on this mm. podcast, trying to schedule it. So it's just like, you know, I, I, I think I trust them. You know, they're right in your ear holes, going right into your brain, whether you're driving, you're cooking, whatever. So it's very personal. And something that's very personal to you, it shows in a podcast. Like this podcast is very personal to me because obviously my name's in it. And two is I talk to people mm. I find interesting in this past six weeks or so. I've been, okay, how can I talk to, you know, the P stands for personal people in my life, either currently or previously, and try and reconnect and just kind of just shoot the shit. So mm-hmm. you really hit it home with the P in podcast for personal. So was it more of, like you like you mentioned, um, helping Latinos in the community with money? Or is it more of also a personal experience and a journey for you as well? I mean, to be honest, it's more like shedding the light on other people. I'm Again, I'm a journalist by trade. So mm-hmm. I'm, it's not in my nature. Um, when I'm, when I'm focused on telling a story, it's not in my nature to be like talk to talk about myself. Um, and so I listen and I listen to a lot of NPR, right. I mm-hmm. listen to a lot of like journalistic minded podcasts. Well, a lot of people though, listen to a lot of what you say, like personalized podcasts, right. It's like advice podcasts, my story podcast, or like super soul with Oprah and everybody knows who Oprah is and it has like her personal touch. But the reason it matters is because it's Oprah doing right. it and it has her personal touch. So I would say that it definitely didn't start like that. Um, I think it's just, as I started putting myself out there on social media, that's when people were interested. And I honestly, it was, uh, I wasn't ready for it really. I wasn't ready for people to ask me and say, well, can you share your story too? Like you're interviewing these FinTech founders, these successful people about their experiences. Like you are successful. And I'm just like, I mean, I, I suppose, yes, but that, mm. that was something I wasn't ready to consider really. Um, but when it did, you know, I took it as an opportunity. I, I, I would consider myself an opportunist. Mm. And so I was just like, you know, let's, let's do this. And so then I started doing speaking engagements, um, started sharing my story. People found it, um, something they could relate to. And I think that that's something like in the pandemic, in the middle of the pandemic, right? When people are like severed socially, I think that that was very powerful. And so for me too, to be able to connect with people halfway around the country, um, because it's very much domestically related, uh, I, th- I thought that that was really special too. Um, so, so yeah, it was, it was, it was a great opportunity. I think my podcast still focuses on my guests. Mm-hmm. I use social media channels more so to show a different side of me, but I try to keep it very like NPR. Like people are just like, Oh, Leanne, you have like, you have a voice to interview people. And so I hone on, on I hone in on that. That being said, I mean, what you said about it being personal, I think that there is something there, right? Like there maybe, maybe there is a future where I do more personal podcast episodes, but I think people have been really receptive to hearing from other people. Um, and then hearing from me on social media, it's all about, I think your channels of distribution and like what, what your audience wants on each. Definitely. Okay, you said a lot of interesting things there. I'm trying to figure out where I want to start. So I definitely want to pivot to a little towards social media because it almost sounds like um, for your personal brands, tackling social media was a little bit of a challenge. Is that easy mm-hmm. to say? But that's interesting because that was your job. 
into like for NASDAQ, you're on the social team, social media, like branding is what you do, strategist, it's in your title. So yeah. how is it, how is it difficult from doing it from a brand perspective, from like a NASDAQ or a Google or what have you to a personal brand where I was like, okay, this is me. This is my own thing where I'm in complete control. Talk to me about how like the, 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 the working for like a corporate prepared you for doing the, doing it personally for your own brand and how is this completely different? Yeah. I mean, I would say that there's definitely nuggets that carry through, but mm -hmm. it's essentially putting you under a microscope. And mm -hmm. so putting me under a microscope is not something that I had ever done. And also like, I spent most of my time in New York just trying to get my footing beneath me personally for my personal brand. So I never put myself under the microscope that I would put a company under, right? Because when you're trying to craft the social narrative for a company, first of all, like a journalist, you tackle the who, what, when, where, why, like who are the players? What do they care about? Why should they care about this? Um, when, when should we be posting, right? When is your audience on and, 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 and you're tackling all of those big questions, but you're not used to turning yourself into the subject, right? Which is why this is why successful business owners hire coaches. This is why they hire things that yes, ideally maybe they would be perfectly equipped to do, but it's like, even the manager needs management. Um, and so that's something that, um, some people decide to outsource, when you're strappy, you have to kind of do it yourself sometimes, right? And so I had to take a different approach to my own social media. And I realized that it's going to be evolving for a bit. Like even now I'm still figuring out like what my personal branding is for Moneda versus myself. Like I think Moneda mm. was much more clear. The branding for the podcast was much more clear. But when people are like, oh, well, who's Leanne? That was a little more complicated because I had my persona at NASDAQ that a lot of people knew because I was doing on camera stuff, as you recall, and mm -hmm. I was interviewing founders and it kind of put me, it put me on the grid in a certain kind of way. And so people were like, wait, you're like the host on NASDAQ. And they were like, oh wait, but you're also the host about this Latino podcast and you freelance. Also I freelanced. I would freelance for like, uh, these magazines, uh, like Yahoo finance and, uh, before then I wrote for business insider and NBC Latino. So occasionally I'd pitch my story. So I had different personas and, and putting myself under that microscope. I just hadn't done that before because all I'd been focused since going to New York was just building my career. And I was like, okay, I want to do that. That seems cool. That seems cool. That seems cool. But when you're looking at a company, you're very specific. You're like, right. what's your messaging? Let's stick to that messaging. Who are you trying to target? Let's stick to that target audience. And like, honestly, a human, we tend to, we tend to say like, we, we want to humanize the company, but a human is not, a human is not a company, you know, like I did a lot of different oh things yeah, it, at, at, in New York. Like, and, and I'm, a, and I think this is the, the kind of thing that we're coming to realization to with the, with the pandemic kind of like just reaching a, like a bottleneck and exploding point, right. Mm -hmm. Is that we're like multi hyphenate people. Like we mm -hmm. can be more than one thing mm -hmm. for a while on my personal, um, social media, I was sharing a lot of NASDAQ stuff. And so people came to know me as the NASDAQ woman, the NASDAQ reporter. Um, but that was only one of my multifaceted things. I was also a freelancer. I was a Mona Moves podcast host. I was also uh, advocating for journalists of color. So, uh, I, you know, like I think that like was were other things going on in the background that made it much more complicated to figure out 
how do I want to position myself on social media? And it's honestly something that to this day, I continue questioning. And I think it's a good thing because people are fluid companies. They settle more into their strategy. Like even when you go public on NASDAQ, you want to have, you can't be changing every, every two months, maybe, maybe like, yes, you tweak, you're always making improvements, but you can't shift your entire messaging. People need a narrative to hang on to, and they need to be able to follow the storyline. Like humans don't really work that way, but, um, but with big influencers, I'm sure that they do. And so I, I think that that's just something that I needed to like reframe for myself and figure out, okay, how do I want to position my podcast and how do I want to contextualize myself? Do you, do you continue like in the world? Do you consider yourself an influencer? <laughs> um, no, uh, okay. well, a micro influencer. Okay. Well, okay. Um, I'd, I'd say, yeah. I would say definitely, because I mean, what is an influencer? It's someone who influences people. Like if you have people yes. who want to hear more about you, congratulations, you're an influencer. Now people think of influence, they think of like Instagram models selling makeup or, you know, what have you, a, a game sure. on and Twitch I, or streaming or what, yeah. whatever. It's like pe- people want me to be an influencer, like, a, like badly. It's like, you need to do this and do that. And it's like, no, <laughs> I am putting well, my foot well, down. See, no. see, that's, that's part of the thing. It's like, well, then you get into the territory of asking what is an influencer. Yeah. If an influencer is someone who influences things, then yeah, I am an influencer. But I think that I don't call myself influencer because going back to the multi-hyphenate thing, I am so many other things. Right. Like I freelance, I do consulting, I have my day job. <laughs> I sit on like nonprofits that I align with. So it's just, it's, it's very, the, the, the term is so vague that it's just very difficult, difficult for me to align with that term. Yeah. Because I'm so many more things that are specific. I don't want to, I don't want to be an influencer. I want to be influential. There's a big difference. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And and I don't have anything against the word influencer. I just think that in an era where we're multi-hyphenates, we like, Maybe we, 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 if we're not reassessing the term, we need a better term. Like, mm-hmm. I, I just think that um, there's a lot of really uh, passionate people making impactful change. And that's what I want to do. I don't simply want to be seen. I want to impact, make change. I think that that's what I'm really attached to. And that's what really like speaks to me. Yeah. I just, I just want to podcast forever, man. I just want to sit in this chair or a chair. Uh, whether in person or remote, <laughs> and just do a bunch of different podcasts on a bunch of different things. It's it's a lot of it's a it's a lot of fun. And I ask, I find myself. It makes me a much better communicator, not just like on, uh, on a podcast. It's like in general, like I was speaking to my parents, speaking to my girlfriend, speaking to my friends, speaking to complete strangers. It makes me. I I find myself. I ask more questions. It's funny. My friend Jared, um, the other day was just like. You know, Will, it's just like, since you've got me into podcasting, doing my podcasts, it's just like, I find myself speaking to people when I'm in podcast mode. And it's just like, Jared, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> like, it's, it's, you're talking to somebody, it's like, okay, I'm not a host, right? I'm just a person right. talking about the Yankees. You know what I mean? Like, do, do you ever yeah. find yourself in a situation where, like, doing a podcast, this helps you in other aspects of your life, other parts of your career, personal relationships, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, I think to be a good podcast host, you have to be a good listener. Mm, uh, I definitely. think that's probably like the big, like a good active listener. You have to be able to riff off what people are saying. Um, and I think part of it is the riff, right? Like it's just like uh, for, for a conversational podcast like this, I think mine is a little more serious. And so I don't tend to 
I don't tend to interrupt someone, but I do tend to listen. And so I, I'll, I'll, I'll be like, okay, let's dig into that. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? And like, I've done my research and can you tell me a little bit more about the behind, like, let's pull back the curtain. But to your point, I think what you're getting at is kind of just like when it turns into a conversational podcast like this, it's, it's like, um, it's like public speaking, but engaged public speaking. Cause like you get the mm. other person gets to public speak with you too. Mm. And I think it's like, like if you notice like being on a podcast is, is distinctly different than just, you know, speaking, whatever comes to mind. There, there is some kind of processing of thought and, and there's some kind of like, there's also the podcast voice. So it's like, it's like layers to it. I think you have the podcast voice and then you also have like, oh, you want to be engaging. You want to frame things in a certain kind of way. You want to like feel like the listener is like, you know, like right there, like in the room with you. So I, I think that, I think that podcasting definitely makes you think about how to be more engaging. And those are things that align with public speaking to me. So I think it does make you a better speaker. Uh, but I think there's a lot of things for me that, that help me be a better speaker and podcasting is definitely one of them. Definitely. You said the word engaging and engagement and social media go hand in hand. You know, I, I do all the social for this channel and most of APS by myself. And it's, mm-hmm. it's very difficult. I'm still learning. Um, but you've done it. When did you, when did you first start your career in social media? What year? 20. I mean, I, I fell into, I felt, I would say I fell into social media, you know, like I, mm-hmm. I only, I always saw it as a launch pad for something bigger. Um, and that would have been 2015. All right. 2015, I went to New York. I found, I was looking to do a journalism job. There were a lot of social media openings in journalism. And so I took again, as an opportunist, I was like, there's opportunity here. And then I started writing also, because that's kind of what I, what I really loved, but I was like, I like both. I like a mix. I am not like a stationary person. So having social media and reporting actually worked for me very well. So I'm thinking 2015 social media, like, you know, Facebook was huge. I pretty sure Instagram was bought at that time. Twitter was still pretty big. YouTube was out there, but like no TikTok, no clubhouse. Like Pinterest, Pinterest was a thing. So how have social platforms changed drastically in the, cause they always changing. They're consistently uh-huh. constantly changing from the beginning of your curse. What's been one of the biggest changes from 2015 social media to 2022 social media? Um, (laughs) you know, it's funny because I was, I was on a call last night with, with a friend and we were just talking about how much just like YouTube has changed Mm. and actually not from 2015, but like, you remember like the early YouTube days, like 2005, like creation foundation of YouTube and the things that would go viral, like viral wasn't even a thing. Like that concept was totally new. And so the things that would go viral, like we'd look back at them and we're like, this wasn't that good. Like, why did we think it was so good? Like we, like a guy dancing or someone falling, like it's like America's funniest home videos. You take it and you put it on YouTube. It's just like, oh man, you know, it's like a little cringe. Um, And so it's crazy to think about that. And so 2005, it's 2022, it's going to be 20 years since in about three years. So when I think about like the last seven years, it's just like, okay, that doesn't seem too bad or too far uh, from, from now in terms of all the changes, but it will be in the next couple of years. Like we'll look at Facebook and we'll say like, what? 
that worked? How did that go viral? Because I remember, okay, so 2015, I started working at Business Insider and I can tell you that their traffic on social drove so many clicks. And honestly, it was like a rude awakening for me in journalism because I got into journalism for love of the craft, right? Like Mm -hmm. a lot of journalists do this. A lot of journalists go study um, the craft and they're like, oh, I fell in love with it. And it, it turns out because universities, a lot of universities are a little bit behind on what's current. Is, is just the fact of it. Mm-hmm. Institutions teach you like a little bit more. And I also wasn't like in a, in a print program, print digital program. And print was unfortunately um, ceasing to exist within years of my graduation. There were a lot of companies that were bought out um, and then the print would be discontinued and we'd all move to digital. So when I went into journalism, um, Facebook was driving a ton of traffic for a place like Business Insider, which was very popular among college students, like nearly all the clicks through Facebook. And I think a big inflection point was the election uh, where Donald Trump became became president. And we really started questioning like Facebook and news consumed from Facebook. Like really, is this reliable? Like um, there's there, there'd been fake news articles that came into question. So I think that that was a big milestone for Facebook and where we started seeing the retreating of like news uh, from Facebook as like, as a, as a news source. The other big thing that has ceased to exist since is live video on Facebook. Like for Facebook really pushed live video and, um, mm. and wanted it to work. And so in turn, newsrooms were investing in entire embed teams of reporters. They hired entire teams to just manage Facebook live. It was insane. Like I have never seen since then, um, or even before then, except for perhaps YouTube, I guess you could argue, uh, like newsrooms go and hire entire teams to just manage one platform. And yet that's what happened with uh, Facebook Live specifically. Facebook Live came out, Facebook was pushing it so much that I do believe they were forming partnerships and um, at times like monetary involved partnerships with newsrooms and newsrooms were hiring entire teams to just manage Facebook Live. When Facebook Live ceased to exist um, or was discontinued or scaled back on, these journalists were let go. And so there was a big Columbia Journalism Review report on this about how a lot of these reporters that had been hired as Facebook Live embeds were either young in their careers or people of color. And so that was a big point of, con- uh, of contention. Uh, the fact that it was all these like very young in their career or uh I guess a a word you could use is vulnerable. A lot of like uh, journalists that didn't have any prior experience, they became specialized in this one thing, Facebook Live, and now it was like kind of rolling back. And so they would need to find something new to specialize in. So I would say some, those are some of the biggest things. Um, I do think that the next frontier that we're heading towards is like social media audio. We are having so much screen time right now. The pandemic had our screen times go off the charts. And so I do think even Mark Cuban said this, we had him on a podcast at NASDAQ actually during my time there. And I worked with him and we asked him, what do you think is the next frontier? And he said, the next frontier is entertainment audio. Mm -hmm. So whoever can turn it into a true cinematic experience and do it in a digestible format is going to be winner. I see the future is definitely audio, uh, definitely live. And I'm not just saying that because I work in both and I love both and I want both to succeed. 
but uh, the idea of going live to multiple platforms at once, uh, as you know, as you've done it, and as you know how I've struggled with it at times, not my fault, this is that the platforms themselves can be really tricky. Um, the platforms like Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn need to understand that when you're going live, exclusivity is dying, especially when it comes to podcasts, new media, media online. I think the idea of exclusive content is just the way of the past because you see podcasts here on iTunes, Stitcher, Google. I think that's going to apply to pretty much everything else, right? Even you can see the streaming services, right? Like uh, Warner Brothers owns HBO. They also own like, let's say, I don't know if it's Paramount. Let's say you use Disney. Disney owns Disney Plus. They own ESPN Plus. They own um, Hulu, right? They own that. There's no exclusivity. It can bounce back and forth between those platforms. Podcast is very similar. But I think the future of streaming is like, listen, everything needs to be everywhere. So if Twitter wants you to stream only through Twitter, people are not going to stream through Twitter because they want to stream to YouTube and Facebook and Twitch at the same time. Mm, that's how you mean it. Okay. Yeah. So it's just like you need the, – the future is an ecosystem, a web of audio and video live. Like, I, I, I'm waiting for the day where an RSS feed can go live. Like, you can do a live audio podcast straight to Spotify. Yeah. I and I think we will see that day. I don't know how you would do that. Uh, I want Nash to get on it so I can become a billionaire. But as someone who cracks that code and figures out, a, like, a system where you can just go live flawlessly through all these different platforms, a bunch of different headaches, that's the future yeah. right there. That's the future. Yeah. Right so what you're what you're talking about is how we have all of this. Um, what's the word? Uh, just separation of platforms. Like everything's so divided, mm -hmm. right? When we just think about streaming in particular. Yeah. Yeah. And and technologically, that's the case too. And it was a headache that we dealt with um, in in our working together. Well, and we saw like all the services that were offered to kind of like stream to dual platforms at the same time to LinkedIn to Twitter, to, and, and when you think about, okay, let's start. Usually when you're producing, you're producing for someone. So you're usually thinking about the listener or viewer. So let's talk about like the listener and viewer experience mm -hmm. for them. It's like, oh, you, I, I, hypothetically, you have different audiences and you're trying to reach them where you're at, but also your audience should probably be like a very specific kind of audience. And so hopefully they would have all of these mediums at one point. They would have like audio if they want it, video if they want it, right? Like they would have, however they want to consume this information, they would get it. Um, so that's one thing. And also from the producer perspective, not a great experience, right? To have to like feed and have to manage these stream keys and oh, mm -hmm. now this got blocked. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 I agree with you that I think that in the future, it needs to be much more streamlined. Uh, like we can't have, um, we've, we've, we've kind of maxed out on all of our like streaming services options and we need now a connector. We yeah. need a grand connector that's going to bring it all together in a fresh and innovative way. So I would agree with that. Um, however, editorially speaking, you said, uh, exclusivity is a thing of the past. I think exclusivity is actually going to be reintroduced. Mm -hmm. Like, I think, 
I think that for, for streaming purposes, yes, we're like done with like exclusive platform ownership. Like it's getting to be very tedious for people, right? It's like, mm-hmm. even when you think about the consumer, it's like, oh, well, I want to watch this show. So now I need to get Apple TV. I want to watch literally just one episode because everyone's talking about it. And so now I have to go get Hulu. That is a headache. I don't think, I, I think that there is going to be an end to that. However, when it comes to exclusivity though, um, not to get too off topic, but I do think exclusivity is going to have a role. Um, because if you think about these platforms, new platforms that have been arising, that is a common thread that people are trying to introduce. And I think we just don't know how. Um, so clubhouse, if you remember when it first launched exclusive, exclusive invites, and it was like celebrities on the app and we really try to make it work. But, um, Clubhouse, I, I I don't know. They haven't done anything ground shaking at this point. Yeah, I um, I remember you first told me about Clubhouse. I'm like, what is Clubhouse? You told me I'm like, oh, that's just a fad. Like TikTok, TikTok. I was like, TikTok might be around for a while because it's so addictive. But Clubhouse, I was just like, you're doing exclusive podcasts essentially for a small yeah. audience when you can get the same thing for free publicly, and you can yeah. you can take like I remember Joe Rogan was on Clubhouse with Tim Dillon. Within an hour, that was on YouTube. So even Clubhouse yeah. can't be exclusive. It's not just like something like that. The internet is always not just thing as exclusivity. It's going to be it's somewhere. It's really hard to say like this is only about X for X. Like people want people want content how they want it. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, for producers like you and me right now, it's a lot more work because there's no way to sync up all of our options. But what I what I meant to say though, is without getting too off track, is that exclusivity, I think, will still have a role in terms of editorial because I think people are very loyal to who they follow. Definitely. And so you're seeing the rise of Web3, right? I think that like the principle of Web3 at this moment, and when you look at like NFTs and what people are doing, the principle of that is exclusivity. And that is very tied to media. Like what people Mm. are doing with NFTs, like that's all about exclusivity. Like you literally buy your access and like proximity to somebody like Gary Vee. And that you is, that is like, considered content. You literally buy your way into a club where you get access to all this content, networking, events, concerts, art. And so I do think that uh, logistically speaking, like I agree with you, but editorially speaking, I do think we're going to see the rise of exclusivity again because, because, because people want like premium content. Mm-hmm. But the thing is like the, the place where we're also maxing out, we're also maxing out on like, free content like think about like have you ever been on tiktok and watched something and you're like this is free because i have i consume a lot of tiktok and i have and and i'm sure the same thing as a podcast where it's just like the 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 creator puts so much effort they have so so much to give and we're at a point where the platforms are just not paying out and we're seeing the rise of the creator economy and people are also getting like they're they're getting they're reaching their like inflection point where they're just like this is ridiculous like we're not getting like the the platforms are getting something from us right they're getting traffic from us and then they get to track that traffic the data Mm -hmm. you know that's what they say like anything that's free means that the customer is probably the the product right like uh, you know like it means that the customer is being tracked and so i think that people are getting to this point where it's just like from the creator side it's like where's my payday, right? So I do think that there's going to be like, 
a move into like what this NFT Web3 model is at some point, uh, or at least some people. I don't think any everybody's going to go there because I think we're still very much in Web2, but I think we are going to have the rise of that and some people migrating into that area um, and uh, have some exclusive content there. And I think that that will be valued. I keep going back and forth with NFTs. Like, are they real? Are they not real? I mean, they're very real. I mean, they're, they're real because people are buying them. Like, it's like, they're not worth anything. No, 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 no. They're worth something because people are literally buying them. Like, are they real? Maybe. Doesn't matter. People are buying them. But the exclusivity, uh, I think an NFT is an, ex an exception because an NFT is exclusive to an individual, right? It's like exclusively were evolved to an individual because only one person can have the NFT. Whereas content, like, like for consumption, you know, the rule number, rule number one of content is it's like, where do you, where do you put the content? You put it where the people are. You know, why, mm -hmm. why, why did NASDAQ choose to put their tower in Times Square? Because that's where people are, right? It's, it's, it's mm -hmm. a destination. Mm -hmm. And in the modern internet, people are everywhere. People are spread out all over the place. People consume their content. Like, how do you, how do you, how do you listen to your podcasts? What do you mean? Like, on what, what platform? What platform? Um, whatever is there, <laughs> but Spotify, usually Apple, Spotify? sometimes if it's more convenient. Okay. I consume all of my content on Stitcher, all of my podcasts mm. on Stitcher. I love that. It's, it's an Android exclusive. I'm a big Android guy. Not a huge fan of Apple. Oh, cause you're an Android I'm an, Andro okay, I'm an Android user. Why. So you're probably like, what's Stitcher, right? Because like, you know what it is, but you don't use it cause you have Apple, but me, sure. you know, I have, I use Stitcher other than Joe Rogan. Cause he's exclusive to Spotify, but if someone tells me, if someone starts a podcast to me, I look on Stitcher, it's not there, I'm not going to listen to it because I'm not going to go out of my way to find something because I have my comfort zone, what I already do. So as a yeah. content creator, you got to go where the people are and people are sure. literally everywhere. Like I don't create content for TikTok because I don't know how, I don't have the time, but I mm -hmm. know I need to be on TikTok. Why? That's where the people are. I need to be on Facebook. Why? That's where old people are. I need to be on Instagram. Why? That's where young people are. I need to be on any on LinkedIn. Why? That's where professionals are, right? And you get these different groups of people and different, different audiences. Of people. Yeah, yeah, it matters. It matters. Like right now, what you do is like, what audience do I want right now? Mm -hmm. And then you go after it. And you that's like, that's a big part of your strategy. It's like, what audiences do I want? Okay, great. Well, I'm going to be on those channels. Right. Um. So that's why it's so important also to identify who your audience is and get specific about that. So I do wonder, like, when you m mesh all of these channels, like, who does your audience become? Do audiences like that? Or do they just like what they like? Do they like their comfort zone? Like, Stitcher's your comfort zone. I like giving my audience as many options as possible. And not just my audience, people I work with, people I work for, people I work, uh, like my clients. I give them options. It's like, mm -hmm. okay, you want to come to me for podcast editing? Here are your options. Here are the price points. You can pick a custom bundle. Okay, so like say like an audio edits a hundred bucks is for the sake of argument. You want to do four of them in a month, I'll do it for 350, right? I'll bundle them together. If you have a budget, I'll work within your budget. I give you the client, the consumer, the customer as many options as possible because mm -hmm. I think the power is with the audience. You say it yourself, right? Like people are getting in some ways the short end of the stick with companies. So who they rely on. Their audience, they go to a Substack, they go to a Patreon where you are heavily reliant on your audience. So you got to give your audience as much options as possible to be successful yeah. and like diversify your content. Cause yeah, you, you could put your content in all these different places to reach a different audience. But I put all my stuff on LinkedIn. 
doesn't mean everyone on LinkedIn is going to like everything I do. People listen to this interview are not going to listen to the interview I did with my best friend, Kay Murphy. They're not going to listen to the interview I did with uh, Phil Riccobono, who is an MLB scout living in Japan, right? Those interests don't mesh. Right, right, but right. That's why it's like, listen, you, have, you, got, you got the option. It's everything yeah. is where you are. You get to pick and choose what you want based on what you like. So diversity and exclusivity is in the content, not in where you're mm. putting the content. Right, right, which is exactly what we were saying earlier. Right, the, 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 the streaming, people have a desire to get it where they need it. So that's, mm. that's not about exclusivity. What it is about exclusivity is the editorial aspect, right? Mm. Like what is the content? The content of the content. <laughs> exactly, right. Yeah. So law strategy. Um, how do you develop a social media strategy using all these different platforms? If everything we've just discussed for the past about, I don't know, 10 minutes, how do you take all that information and form a strategy for yourself, for a client, or for whoever? Where do you, where do you start when it comes to forming a social media strategy? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, and honestly, like it's changed throughout the years mm -hmm. um, what a strategy has looked like because the attention has been different. And with every new social channel, of course, what you're here from your client, whether it's a company or an individual is, oh, well, there's a new, there's a new social media platform. Uh, why don't we do that? And honestly, I, I tend to, you know, I answer that question with more questions. I remember there was a a year, was it like 2017, 2018, when there was a new social media platform that everyone started talking about, it was called Peach. It probably lasted two weeks before never, it completely had Never a, heard of it. <laughs> it's for a reason. And so it's just like, I, I do think that there is, um, before I tell you how to make a social media strategy, I'll tell you how not to make that. Mm. Avoid the shiny object syndrome. We tend to have as a society, and I've noticed this a lot with social media, we have shiny object syndrome. And I think part of it is also just, um, there's so many, there's so much new, new news, new things. And so we tend to run toward it because we think that because it's new, it must be good and we need to be on it. Um, but you don't need to be everywhere. You only need to be where your audience is, which is why it's all the more important to figure out who your audience is and where they live. So uh, I would definitely with working with everyone, I, I asked them like, where is your audience? How well do you know your audience? Luckily, uh, I, I've worked with people in the past who tend to know their audience very well. Um, and so they, they say, oh, you know, like my audience lives on LinkedIn. My audience loves TikTok. Um, so, so then we start working on a strategy from there. And I guess um, I'll, I'll give you a specific example. I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you Moneda. Moneda, we leaned... The, for the podcast, we leaned into, into TikTok because that's where people were sharing their stories. Like a lot of Latinos were just like, wow, this is the wild west. We get to share our experiences. We get to make funny videos and no one was talking about money, but I got significant traction. I was like, let's go with this on Instagram. I've had steady growth, but it hasn't been like astronomical because I think on Instagram, what people are looking for is like personal finance advice. That's what really does mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. And honestly, um, I know my content and I know that my content is less so personal, me telling you per what to do with your money and me bringing the expertise to you. Mm -hmm. And yes, I'll share relatable stuff, but I'm not a certified financial planner. I'm not positioning myself in such a way. I'm positioning myself as an journalistic expert that brings you the nuggets of information from the leaders themselves, connects you to them, puts on programming. So that's my positioning. Um, so I did find that for me, TikTok was great. 
for my personal brand, Instagram was great because that's where I could build a community and say like, okay, Leanne has all these facets that she runs in. She runs in the journalism rail. She runs in the um, Latinos and money rail in the NASDAQ rail. What is it that you need? And so building community on my Instagram has been really successful. What I really tapped into recently was LinkedIn because I don't think a lot of people realize this, but LinkedIn is actually a great, if you're sharing resources, LinkedIn is a place you have to be because that's where yeah. people are looking for resources. Mm-hmm. I, so I, love, clicks, I love putting my stuff on LinkedIn. Love if it. you're trying to drive link clicks, go explore LinkedIn and see if your audience is there. So I think there's a lot of value in not chasing every channel because not only does it have the potential to burn you out, but if you put the exact same messaging across all channels, that doesn't mean you're going to drive four times as many clicks or four times as many like, you know, uh, engagements. And then the other thing is to, um, to rank what your KPIs are going to be. So in my roles, like since my first role in journalism, I've learned about the power of measuring. You can't, you can't measure all and be like, everything is going to quadruple, especially when you're talking about follower growth after you reach a certain peak. Um, so Yes, growth is great, but you need to t- you need to figure out what do you want. Do you want engagement with your community? Do you want growth? Do you want link clicks, lead gen? Like what what is it that you want? And then go chase that because your strategy will look very different for each of those. For example, if you're building on Instagram um, and you're trying to build community, you're trying to get comments from your followers. You're trying to get them engaged. You're probably trying to get them to know you personally so that they feel more connected. That doesn't mean you're going to go on Instagram and be like, click on this link, click on that one. Okay. Now go to this one. People are going to get really turned off real quick. So you need to really figure out what matters to you right now and then plan for that. So those are just some tips around building strategy. Um, Of course you have your Excel sheets where you plan like the social media language, but that's just the day to day. When it comes to strategy, you really want to think about what you're measuring who you're chasing, your audience, and then what platforms you're going to be on. All right. That's great. It's very helpful. Sounds like I need to go back to the drawing board <laughs> and write some things up a little bit. All right. So let's, let's focus more on uh, Moneta Moves. The name. Where, where does that come from? How did it stick? Yeah. Um, this was like uh, – So I launched the newsletter in 2017, I want to say. I was still at CNBC, and I was like, oh, I'm having a really hard time pitching stories about Latinos and money to some national publications, so I'm just going to make my own newsletter. And I shared Mm -hmm. it with my journalist friends, and this was around the time that Cardi B came out with that uh, rendition to the Boogaloo song, uh, I Like It Like That. And it's called, I like it. And it's with bad bunny. Who's also a favorite rapper of mine. And, um, yeah, she, uh, this is the rise of Cardi B and one of her like taglines was like money moves. And so I was just like, you know, she's Latina moneda money. Moneda means coins. It's equivalent to money when you're talking like casually in Spanish. I was like, we're going to call it moneda moves. It's catchy. It rolls off the tongue. My journalist friends thought it was a kick. So that's what I put it. And I filed the trademark. I filed the trademark last year and I'm closing out the process. Hopefully soon. Those take a very long time, by the way, if anyone ever files a trademark, those take a while. And I'm so excited to hopefully get my certificate of um, trademark soon. That's awesome. 
yeah, it does. It does roll off the tongue, and it's it's niche. Um, it's niche. Like like, yeah. th- like this this podcast is a variety show. It's not niche at all. I mean, each each episode is niche, but the overall arching podcast itself is not. So, but so you're I- niche. I'm I'm definitely niche. There's only one Will Tarashuk. I mean, I've tried to be other people, but I failed every single time. I only know how to be me. So I am very yeah, niche. Yeah, you should only be you. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to do anything else. Right? People have tried. So, I, so I'm not going to be a good influencer because it's like, how you want me to be an influencer? It's not going to work because if I'm going to be an influencer, I'm going to do it my way because every other way has failed. So it's gotten yeah, me this far. Yeah, probably what makes you an influencer. Probably, probably. It's just like, Jerry, if you want me to be an influencer, I'm going to do it. Just... Don't tell me how, because it's not going to work. Trust me. <laughs> Trust me. But I bring up niche uh, because um, you, are, you are Latin. You are Mexican, correct? Mexican. I'm Mexican. Mexican. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what it is in the past few years. I'll pay, say past five, eight years or so. But Hispanic Latin culture has just exploded. Not only worldwide, but specifically the U.S. Like you mentioned Bad Bunny. I have become a big fan of Bad Bunny in the past year. <laughs> you know, I'm a big fan of Osuna. Uh, my girlfriend got me into Carol G. So like all those different, like Latin music is very, very mainstream right now. And Latin culture itself is incredibly mainstream. As, as a Latin woman, what does that mean to you to see your culture bleeding into the mainstream and how that affects how you create content? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you what it was like to be a journalist in just like 2015 and Mm -hmm. earlier and trying to do stories about Latinos. It just wasn't received. Like people didn't see it as newsworthy. And um, and I think the thing is, Latinos always knew the power that we had, like the cultural power, the art power, the economic power, but we didn't have the studies and the numbers to back it. Um, And I mean, if you really were a nerd, you would go to the Pew Research Center and Pew Research Center would tell you like, oh, Latinos are projected to be a significant part of the population by 2020. And like, no one reads those. I was like a journalism nerd. I read those. And so I was like, well, I know. I know that we are projected to be a significant part in contribution to the American economy. And I know that we pay our taxes, even though some people seem to, to think that because we have a, uh, or at that, in the early 2000s, the, the, the main topic of conversation around Latinos was immigration. So people seem to think that, you know, immigrants didn't pay taxes. I'm like, I know that they do because the numbers prove it. And so I was, my head was in these numbers and I knew them. And I just think people didn't know them. Now we have access to, to more numbers. We know more, there's more information, there's just more. And so we know that Latinos uh, have a significant GDP of $2.7 trillion, which is an impressive figure to repeat over and over again. Mm -hmm. But like, I think that holds a lot of power to say like, oh, you know, like Bad Bunny won this award, right? Like, or that Encanto was won Oscars just last weekend for a best animated film. So I think now we have actual titles and attributions to our very diverse cultures. And that has been um, huge. It's validating. And I think validation matters. I think sometimes people... um, Sometimes people say like, oh, you don't need validation. But like, actually, like when you think about like political influence, we were talking about influencers, when you're talking about like political and like cultural influence, validation totally matters. Are you kidding me? Like the world runs on money and like validation, power, 
right? It's Mm -hmm. like people confirming, yes, you have power. And that's huge because that gives you access to so many more doors to open. We've always known, like, also the other thing is Latinos are so diverse, right? Like we're politically diverse. And that's the thing that I still don't think like people fully understand. Like my perspective is going to probably be wildly different than say like child of a Cuban immigrant. Mm-hmm. Just like political history and just uh, the way that they came and and their upbringing. And another Mexican might have a completely different perspective. And so I think we need to, I think where we're at right now, it's great to see the representation. We need to break away from like the one dimensional or two dimensional, like Latino, you know, like, like brown cartoon waving hello at the screen. Like we're so much more than that. Right. Um, and I think it's just going to take a little bit for us to be like pushed in that direction. Um, there's an entire discussion in our community around whether like in some parts in our community, at least around whether like the term Latino is still relevant because people say we're so different. So why group us under Latino? Um, and, and the truth is my, this is my opinion. I think Latino is a political term but it is a powerful term because it is a political term that can be used to, um, to garner positive impact and garner influence if used wisely. Mm-hmm. So that's my take on that. But I, I am really excited to see representation of diverse cultures and I definitely want to be an active player in it, which is why I do what I do. Well, I'm a big fan of the culture. Uh, I've always, I've always loved it. Um, my girlfriend's actually from Guyana. And or, or I should say her family is from Guyana. So I'm getting exposed to that culture as well, which is incredibly exciting. But something she talks about a lot. So Jazz, know you're listening. I'm not going to be happy I brought this up. Uh, first generation or second generation Americans and how different it is from myself, who is fourth generation American. Do you interview and talk to a lot of first or second generation Americans from first generation, meaning they're the first ones born here and the parents immigrated or second meaning their parents were born here and they're second generation immigrant uh, parents. Um, you know what I mean? Did you talk a lot of them and like their experiences and how, how vastly different it is from my experience or anyone I know's experience from having parents who have been here forever? Yeah. Yeah. I would say that a lot of the people that I interview for my podcast are first or second generation for mm-hmm. sure. And we do talk about that because the the question where everybody can kind of share that is the question around like, what, what has been your biggest money, like evolution or money learning? And so this, this is actually ends up being a very deeply personal question. And I didn't realize that until I started like having conversations with people. And I was like, this is the question to get them to talk about this because mm-hmm. a lot of people, what they do is they share a story from their childhood and how they, their parents viewed money and how wildly different because they're being introduced into a new economic system. I think that's the difference, they're right? Starting they from scratch. Yeah. Literally, they're starting literally from, scratch. from scratch. And they don't know anything because yeah. they, they're, they're so focused on like survival, right? They don't think yeah, about well, 401ks. <laughs> Well, well, that's for some people too. It's just like a new economic system. Like some people right. may have come to the United States and been per- perfectly fine. Like they're middle class. Not, a, I'm okay. not. I don't mean to suggest that everyone's like poor and they came to for their rags to riches American dream, because that's also one dimensional story that's being told about our community. That's like just not always true. Right. Like, like sure, my family was low income. And, and I'm first to build generational wealth. And I think that's powerful, but I don't think that's everyone's story. There's, it's just a new economic system. What is true is that in their native country, perhaps they didn't have credit scores, right? Mm-hmm. They didn't have FICO measuring their activity. Right. They didn't have, um, 
perhaps like the, the investment opportunities that we do here in a traditional stock market, right? Perhaps they had crypto. Actually, some people have like schooled me in crypto because some some countries that mm. where people are immigrating from, they actually rely more on crypto. Yeah. El, because perhaps El Salvador, they had El Salvador yeah. made its uh, primary currency. Yeah, Venezuela started making its own crypto because mm -hmm. it was going through some crisis uh, economically. So um, I think that that's like that question, like the what has been your biggest money evolution, like really gets to people because it's just like, wow, look at how far I've come because I've been I've been building in a completely new different system. And that, that at the end of the day is not only an economic shock, it's a culture shock. And so people have to adapt to a whole new environment. And I think we don't give um, enough credit to the fact that like people who are first generation and second generation are adapting to a completely new system. Right. Like my parents like grew up and spent their first 30 years of their lives in a wildly different system than, than they came to in the United States. And it's just like, imagine taking your life and plunging it into an ice cold bucket of water and, and not really getting a chance to come out. Unless you, maybe you had the privilege and you could, and you had the money, but my parents could it. They were like plunging and plunging here for good. So it's, um, it's a shock. And I think what's to be learned from that is really, really, really rich. Um, and it's validating for other people to hear that, to say like, oh my gosh, I thought it was just me. Like you also had to figure out how to navigate and, and, um, and at a young age, maybe translate documents for your parents, like legal documents or or, or tax documents like, mm -hmm. oh, like, oh, I thought it was just me. I had no idea how to navigate something like FAFSA, like financial aid. Like you had to navigate that too. And like, you know, like it, it's, it's all of these things that we are validating to hear. And even more so when it's like a success or a person you see as successful, like FinTech founder or like a person who's like a financial coach. So I think that that question is really powerful for people to share. I, I agree. And it's, I, I, I like hearing that perspective because I learned, <clears throat> I learned something too. It's like, you don't know how to do this. I also don't know how to do this. <laughs> I, sh I should probably go on this too. I call my dad. Oh, it's already set up. Christ. Thanks dad. <laughs> Glad that was all taken care of. So, uh, is your target audience more younger generation, like Gen, Gen Z, millennials, boomers? Who, who do you think your target audience is? Yeah, so I've looked, at, I've looked at my ages and there's definitely like mid-20s to late 30s. Mm. Those are the people that are listening. And <clears throat> it's actually like probably like I thought it would be more women, but I'm glad to hear that men are listening to the podcast too. It's about 50, high 50% women and like 40% men. So mm. It's bringing a decent range because also the, the range of topics that are covered are vast. Like I'm not just giving personal finance advice. I'm not just talking to FinTech founders. I'm not just talking to VC. Um, it's, it's a little bit of everything. And I think that's what it is. It's a smattering of everything, money and Latinos. It's a survey of literature, if you will, of like all the different things that we're doing in money and everything that I saw missing, quite frankly, in these big national outlets that reported on Warren Buffett and Bill Gates on rotation every day. Right. Which like, I mean, great icons, right? But like, there's so much being done by other communities. And I think that other communities are also getting a hold of this. I also want other people, people of color to, to see the links here and be inspired. I, 
I think that that's why I also aim to do more collaborations with Black community, the Asian community. I think that there's a lot for us to learn from each other and not just live in the silo. But I do think that it is validating for Latinos to hear it from other people within their similar cultures. Yeah, it's it's definitely good to uh, expand out of your bubble, uh, mm-hmm. but also to remember the people in your bubble, the ones who are going to defend you forever and going to have your back forever. So uh, I def I definitely agree. I mean, my audience is everybody. Is this people right now? Right now, my audience is people I know personally. Right? It's like who who mm-hmm. do I who do I who do I know is going to listen to this podcast and enjoy it? Like I'm creating podcasts for people I know and people I think would enjoy it. Um, if someone else likes and it. some, and, and honestly, that's perfectly fine too. Yeah. I don't, I'm also trying to, I think like the pandemic changed a lot and for me, and I think the other thing is like, not everything has to have like a, um, productivity KPI, you know, yeah. like some things can just be for pleasure for the people that you know, and you love and the people that have your back, like you said, like, and honestly, like influencers, Influ- when you think about like the traditional, like <clears throat> the like biggest, broadest definition of an influencer, like they call on people from all walks of life. Mm-hmm. It's not because, oh, I'm focused on this, this, and this. Like there's people who are just like, um, they like pull on people. And I think that's also really cool. Like, I think that's cool that like, you know, you can talk about everything under the sun and people are just gravitated towards you. Like you're the niche. Right. That's all you need. Half my episodes are just, my audience is me. <laughs> I make content for my enjoyment. The piece ain't a personal. Um, might as well stand for William. But um, <laughs> I just lost, lost my train of thought. So take me back to the beginning. The, the, the very first podcast you did, I remember because I listened to it. What was the hardest thing that you had to overcome? The biggest hurdle you had to overcome when you first started the podcast? Um, I started this at the top of the pandemic. So mm-hmm. the first podcast, the first couple podcasts I did out of my closet, like, because I, I knew that that was like something that a lot of like NPR journalists actually did and tweeted about during the pandemic. Actually, one of my favorite journalists, um, who reports in similar areas that I do, Tanzina Vega, she's reported on race and money, um, for CNN, for the New York times, and then had her own show on NPR, the takeaway. Mm-hmm. She reported from a closet. So I did that too. But I would say that that's definitely a struggle. You know, you're like, it's like, you're, it's like your tiny New York closet. It's, uh, it's taller than it is wide. <laughs> so there's that going for me. Um, but I'm just barely cramming in there and shoving the mic in the, my, my blue Yeti in front of me and being like, the pops are going everywhere. Cause I didn't have like a, I mean, mm. right now I'm talking from, from headphones, but like, there's like pop, pop, pop. Yeah. Every pop time filter. I talk. Yep. There's no pop filter. I'm just getting started. Um, I did everything remote, so that there was that going for me. Um, I didn't have to find a studio. But honestly, yeah, it was just in my closet. It was in my closet. And my first interview, I don't know if it was Investing Latina, my friend Julie. Um, I don't remember my first interview. I remember recording the promo. I remember the first couple of interviews, but I'm going to even look it up right now because I don't remember. So I can tell you. Well, if it makes, if it makes you feel better, uh, I had a part my first podcast. Actually, I just crossed seven years last month. So you know, pat in the back for me. Congrats. Um, but for the longest time, we had three people and two microphones. So mm. let, let that settle in. So I had my microphone because I was- Did the- you have one of those like snowball- 
No. So I've never actually used a USB mic. I've always used some sort of a mixer. Um, mm. So it it had it had three plugins. So I could have had a third mic. I just didn't buy one. <laughs> one of my friends just didn't buy one. But the three of us were in my room. This was in college too. So this was like my senior year of college. The three nice. of us were in the room. I had the one mic because I was like the first mic. I was the main host controlling the conversation. And then the mic went between my two friends, Dave and Ricky, until eventually we just got a third mic. And that was in like episode 80. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. So, That's amazing. No, but it's always starts scrappy. Okay. So my first interview was with Investing Latina. It was with my friend, Julie. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Julie's a dear friend of mine. So all I'm going to remember to tell you is that it was a great conversation because it always is with her. Um, but it was also like, I'm looking here and it's an 11 minute episode. So it was very brief. I remember, um, I remember because I, I'm, I'm telling you, like, how long should my podcast be? I go, however long you want it to be. You know, there is however long it takes you to get your point across. That's what I tell everybody. Well, the thing is, I was such a perfectionist when I started. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm still kind of a perfectionist, but I really was like, I'm going to edit out all the fluff. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we probably had a 30 minute conversation. And I was like, cut, 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 cut. And it was 11 minutes. Again. No wrong answers. But Leanne, I remember you telling me, an hour podcast, that's so long. We've been talking for an hour and eight minutes, and it went by just like that. It did. It did. No, you're right. Yeah. And I'll tell you, like, I still think, I do remember you asking and me telling you, like, an hour podcast is long. I'll tell you that my cap for podcast, it's still at around 35 minutes. And that's A-OK, because in podcasting, (laughs) there are no wrong answers. Well, Leanne, my final few questions. What's next for you? Your five-year plan, your 10-year plan, your career goals. Um, I know you're going to be a massive success. I'm excited to see you rise. I'm excited um, to see your career build inside and outside of NASDAQ. You're still the fastest typer I've ever seen in my life, so kudos to you. Um, But what I know you're going to be huge, but I want to hear it from you, where you're going to be by the time your career is all wrapped up. Oh my gosh. Well, I don't know that my career will ever be wrapped up, to be honest. I find it really hard to think about like retirement. I like to think about like sabbaticals Mm. and just like, I wish that everybody had, can we just agree though, that like we all deserve like sabbaticals at some point. Uh, Maybe it's just like, this is like my very privileged thoughts, but I'm like, I do think that everybody just needs to like retire in small intervals instead of just like working up to the build up to this ever elusive, like retirement age. Like let's just all take a sabbatical every four years, chill out, go drink a Marg by the beach and everything will be chill. But anyway, your question was, where do I think I'll be in five to 10 years? 10 years, I can't tell you, well, because I thought that I was going to be a journalist for life seven years ago. So that's when my full-time like career started. And I've already done three careers, technically. I've done journalism, I did corporate comms, and now I'm in tech. So that's been a ride. I have no idea where I'm going to be in 10 years. I have, I have like ruminations you know I have like I'm just like oh you know like some days I think about like oh maybe you know I love I love my hometown I love Chicago sometimes I think about like doing something in politics but then I'm like do I actually really like politics I think 
I'm less, when it comes to my career, I'm less about the title nowadays and I'm more so about what I want to accomplish. So wherever that will take me, that will be the right path. I think what I want to drive is impact. Um, I want to drive change in for the community, representation and actual palpable change for the Latino community, access to financial resources, um, access uh, to see themselves represented through storytelling at a national and global scale. So wherever that will take me, that will be the role for me. I don't know that I, like job titles like that haven't spoken to me as much as of late. Uh, what has spoken to me is is the impact and the results that you drive. Um, because if there's anything I learned is just that um, life is a crazy ride. You know, you only get one shot at it. So why limit myself to like a one one like trail kind of situation? So I'm open to a lot. Um, I know what I want to do. Um, and whatever job title that ends up being, that's, that's exact. I, I feel like I'll know when I come upon it for sure. It's a great answer. It's a great answer. Couldn't have said it better myself. Um, so final question always goes to the guest. Anything you've ever wanted to ask me now is your chance. If you got nothing, cause I like to throw curveballs. You can always plead the fifth and we'll go right on home. <laughs> um, well, I wasn't, I wasn't ready for that one, but I mean, I, Hmm. I think I, I want to know what your first audio experience was like. Oh my God. This where is... you were just like, audio is magic. Cause you talk about it so highly. Okay. Okay. So, okay. So do you mean audio in general or audio I like, produced? Like not in the professional extent. Okay. Like, did you have, like, I had a, I had I a time when I was like, journalism is magic mm -hmm. and it had nothing to do with like school and it had mm -hmm. nothing to do with the teacher. Like, you know, when would, did you find out that audio was magic? I know the exact moment. Um, I don't remember where I told this story or if I released this story, but I'll tell it again. Cause I love, it's a podcast and I tell the same story multiple times. So, um, when I was a child, a very young child, uh, either in kindergarten or before kindergarten, I would go to my grandmother's house across town because obviously my parents worked. Um, and my dad would drop me off. You know, we would drive up. We'd see the school buses in the church. We'd count the school buses, one, two, three, four. And my dad was a big fan of Boston Sports Talk Radio. It's like W-E-E-I, you know, dancing Callahan in the morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like whatever, sports radio. Bunch of angry Boston people talking about how awful the Red Sox were in, our, in their early 2000s. So it was then and there where I would hear these guys talking on the radio that just had me hooked. And back then, podcasts weren't really a thing. The internet wasn't a thing. So the only place I could listen to it was in the car. Being a little kid, I didn't drive, obviously. You know, my mom would listen to Cheryl Crow in the car or Aerosmith, and she wouldn't change the radio station talk radio for a seven-year-old. No. So it was then where I actually fell in love with audio storytelling. And that kind of thing was implanted in my brain. Because eventually when in high school, I got a car. I rode to school. You know, I didn't listen to the radio. I listened to... um. I listened to the radio, but the favorite thing I listened to was, um, I forget the name of it, but it was like prank calls where the radio station would call these random numbers, the senseless, the senseless survey. 
and they would see how many questions they can get. And it was just the funniest thing to me. And then I found podcasting. And I was like, oh, what I love about the radio, I can have in my pocket whenever I want. And then I was just off to the races. So, you know, and there's something, there's something so great about that, about those jokes in the morning. It's funny because I think when I moved to New York, funny enough, well, no, it's not, it's not, it's not that odd. Like when I moved to New York, I stopped listening to local radio because I was just like, I had my lineup of podcasts and I like what I like, right? It was like the NPR, the daily, and Mm -hmm. I don't know, uh, Latino USA. Um, But I come back home and I sit in a car and turn on the radio and you hear people like, throwing jokes, like making jokes about Chicago or, you know, like doing a prank call. And it's just like, there's something so small towny, but like also just very like comforting about that because it just feels like you're surrounded by warmth by people. And so I, I, I do have to say, I do love that. I love that effect. I love feeling that. It was, it was very personal which is mm-hmm. just really my whole philosophy on podcasting and my philosophy on content creation, where as long as you're doing what you want to do, someone's going to like it, even if that someone is just you. And that's totally okay. That's totally okay. But I think I think you have a few more people, Will. Oh, yeah. No, I got, I got at least a dozen. <laughs> at least a dozen. We'll see. I don't know. I don't know, Leanne. Like, I, I, it's not my job to sell the content. It's my job to make the content. I'm trying to sell the content, but my expertise is not social media. My expertise is not the content. My expert expertise is these bubbles you see floating around our heads. My expertise is editing the seven clips I know for a fact I'm going to cut from this podcast. Like my expertise is convincing someone why they need a podcast. Cause like, mm-hmm. like my expertise is bringing someone on a podcast and they get off and go, I need to start one of these today. You know, that's, mm. that's my expertise. So and it's just fun. Like I'm in, like I say in the intro, I'm invincible behind this microphone. It's the purest version of myself. I love it. I love it. And that intro, I'm still, I'm still like smiling over it. I think it was so great. It was awesome. Yeah. That deep voice is me too. Welcome to uh, You said that. Yeah. And I genuinely thought it was too different. Do you do voice acting? No, I, I tried very briefly. Um, also when I was unemployed, I tried to become a voice actor, but I can, so that voice is actually uh, my impression of Neil St. Clair, who was the first person who hired me out of college. Love that man to death. And he, he talks very low. Hey, gang, like, how you doing? Like, he's that, he's just that kind of guy. So I just always kept that voice. Like, okay, this voice is perfect for the intro. And then me, because I, I wanted to do it, this intro, like a sports talk radio, yeah. old-timey intro. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. I and love it. That, those are the notes I gave. I picked, I picked the music, and I told Christian, just have fun with it, and that's what he gave me. I was like, this is perfect. Perfect. But, I Leanne, love it. that, unless you got anything else for me, we can, we, we, will, we will hit that road home. Anything that's, else, my That's all we've got. All right, ladies. and Well, Leanne, I want to actually thank you uh, for everything, um, for hiring me at my current job. Uh, you changed my life for the better, giving me so many opportunities, letting me learn and grow, letting me take that ball and run with it into the position I am today. I would not be here without you. Um, and Jill and myself, of course, I got some credit, you know, pat in the back. Um, I appreciate you as a friend. I appreciate you as a professional. I appreciate you as an influencer. Um, and thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Will, for having me on. This is a great conversation. And anything you want to plug 
The floor is yours. Yeah, um, definitely. Please follow Moneda Moves at M-O-N-E-D-A Moves on Spotify, Instagram, and TikTok. It's Leanne Money. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that has been my good friend, Leanne Alfaro, the one and only. And my name, of course, is Will Tarashuk. This has been the Talking with Tarashuk podcast. That is T's and Thomas, A-R-A-S-H-U-K. All of my other interviews, of course, with Mr. Fretz, the one and only, my very first fan, my good friend and co-host of the King's Rings podcast, the one and only, Kay Murphy. Uh, the man who I'm in his wedding next month in May, Chris Scally, as well as all the other people I've interviewed from authors, uh, to life coaches, so many life coaches, and MLB scouts, all can be found at ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com to find all of my other podcast archives, as well as anything from the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions, where I talk to podcasts about their podcast, their journey, and the good old American networking tool can be found at ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com. If you want to be a guest on this podcast, make sure you reach out to me at will at APSpodcast.com. That's will at APSpodcast. Stay with me now. Dot com. And if you make me go, ooh, that's interesting, you're on the show. It really is that simple. I'll be back next week talking with, it's a surprise. You'll just have to see. But keep on podcasting. Keep on doing you. And yeah, I'll see you there.